0: Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is our last episode for our series on governing during pandemic. Over the last year, we've talked with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about how local governments and organizations responded and adapted to our shifting needs during this public health crisis. If you want to be involved in the podcast and get behind-the-scenes content about each episode, you can head on over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh.
1: You sure can, and you should do that, in fact. Um, So we weren't quite sure what we should do for our 50th um, episode 50 50. and um, talking about it with several people we realized you know we really should go back to the roots of this uh, which is what started our whole podcast uh, governing during pandemic so our series one and um, you know instead of bringing on a new guest or, you know, trying to, you know, summarize it ourselves. We thought, you know, what if we just check back in with, you know, folks that joined us during series one, during, you know, the, the beginning parts of the pandemic. And so we were lucky enough to have um, uh, several folks join us, two guests for today. Uh, and, and it was two very different, but also related conversations.
0: And, and some of the things that I think come out of the conversations with um, Katie, um, who is actually our first ever episode, and with Mayor Blackwell, um, who is one of the early episodes, I think one of the, um, one of the earliest. I
1: think episode 10, I feel like she's episode, Okay. no, so yeah, episode six, episode six,
0: yeah. Six, yeah. So also a really early episode, uh, kind of highlights some of the additional things that have come up uh, through over the year for us as we've been talking to people. Um, and I think for me, it's almost, I think, best summarized by how the, how the pandemic um, has really highlighted tensions um, or um, uh, and maybe that's not the best word, but kind of these tensions between how it has amplified or highlighted uh, inequities uh, with
2: society. Yeah,
1: I think uh, many of the inequities, well, at least, at least the economic inequities, could be feasibly dismissed prior to the pandemic, right? Where, uh, where you know, well, it's about someone not pulling up their bootstraps, while well, it's about someone, uh, you know, being lazy, where it's about someone not doing what they should have done, whereas during the pandemic, when, you know, we had these uh, multiple crises happening, uh, all, all at once, including um, you know economic crises, in addition to uh, to to, ra- to you know just crises over, you know racial inequality in in the treatment of of, of black communities by police officers, mm-hmm. um, that we were able to see when when there are people out of work, when you don't have access right to employment and to money, uh, that in fact you still do need to have food, uh, and that was really you know. Brought uh, brought out in a very raw manner, where we saw all you know of these just miles of cars lined up to get Mm -hmm. a box of food, Uh, and Mm -hmm. and I think it became such that it you couldn't ignore it anymore, or just blame it on someone lacking bootstraps.
0: Yeah. So on the one hand, the 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 pandemic highlights or amplifies kind of the inequities that existed and that the pandemic made worse but also the kind of the humanity, all uh, right. So that, you know, that we are, we, we are all capable of being compassionate people and working collaboratively. And, and so kind of those two things, right. The super divisive and polarized and unequal space, but also the possibilities of, human connection and compassion. And I don't know those two, they kind of are like juxtaposed and in, in, in both episodes or both uh, discussions, sorry, that comes out. And I think it's, you know, it's a theme I, in many ways kind of resonates throughout the entire series over the last year.
1: Yeah. That, I mean, you're right that there's a recognition that we can be compassionate and we can take care of each other as, you know, as communities, uh, and as societies and that there is something that that feels really right about doing that. And so, you know, that, that leads to demand for doing that more or doing that in a more formal way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that maybe
0: not everybody wants to do that, right? Yeah, uh, right. Or, or and I want- think that's important too, right? We have the capacity to be compassionate. <laughs> yeah, 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 we have the capacity. But we can't ignore the history that has gotten us to this place of polarization and inequality
1: <laughs> absolutely so that i yeah i the, it, it's interesting how they both spoke to this uh this theme in a in a in a different way um It was a very very compelling episode, I think everyone will really enjoy celebrating our fiftieth episode with us. So back with us is Katie Carver-Reed, our our first official episode, and so I'm just going to call you our first guest. And we are checking in for our 50th and, you know, wanted to just check in and tell us. How uh, how this past year has gone for you since uh, we last spoke? Which was, you know, obviously we're kind of at the beginning stages of the pandemic. Uh, we didn't know how long this would last, certainly, uh, but we knew that things were getting pretty bad.
2: Yeah, definitely a lot of lessons learned. I think that you know when we talked last, like you mentioned, it was early on in the pandemic. I think schools were maybe still open, but it was close to them closing and. So there was a lot that we didn't know what we didn't know. And so we had to to learn that while trying to respond to it at the same time, as did everyone. And so that presented, I think, a lot of challenges for us. I think we talked to you right after the National Guard arrived. They're still here a year later. Oh
1: my gosh. Yeah.
2: They're still with us. They're starting to scale down. Uh, When we started, we had 42 National Guard members. Now we have about 20, Um, but they've been with us for over a year, which I remember when they first came and we first saw military vehicles driving down our street, you know, that made it really feel like, okay, we're in a crisis. (laughs) Like this is disaster response mode now. And for our food bank, we're lucky to be in Northeast Ohio where we don't really have to respond to disasters. We're not a food bank that responds to hurricanes and tornadoes. And so this was the first real test for us of a disaster response in a lot of ways. Like how do we ramp up to meet community need when it spikes as drastically as it did? And so I think I learned that we're a lot more flexible and capable than maybe I felt like we might be. You know, I think all of us feel that way in our personal and professional lives. Like, wow, I can do a lot more than I thought I could. When times are hard, you know? And so I think that we learned a lot of how we could leverage resources to meet the needs as they presented themselves and to recognize that. I think, you know, we did a lot of long term planning. You know, we had issues with the supply chain. And so our food bank, we had conversations about what happens if we run out of food. (laughs) you know, um, and our inventory got to a 10-year low at one point because of issues in the supply chain, which people probably read about uh, through various media stories about, you know, milk being thrown away. It wasn't because the food didn't exist. It's because the supply chain was broken. Uh, we heard from farmers that there were eggs, there just weren't cartons to put them in. Yeah, right. Or there were vegetables, but there wasn't enough aluminum to make cans to put those vegetables in. And so you know a lot of those issues presented themselves in the grocery store why maybe there was a limitation on how many diced tomatoes you could buy when you went to the store that same kind of thing was applying for us then um, and we were having to compete more with grocers trying to fill their shelves where usually we're in a position where we're trying to you know collect the excess that they have and so really the the way in which food came to us was a lot different and then there were government responses along the way to the creation of an entirely new charitable food program just happened quickly, the Farmers to Families Food Box program, and that presented its own challenges, grateful for the food, uh, but the rollout of a new large scale federal program in a short period of time, in a way that isn't the normal means of distribution, uh, presented its own set of issues along the way. So really trying to leverage the resources made available and make the best of them, even when they weren't being offered in the way that was best, if that makes sense. Kind of learning to operate without volunteers for a while just because of social distancing and because of the guards presence we couldn't have volunteers here and so uh, in a typical year people that come to the food bank to volunteer volunteer enough hours to make the equivalent of 29 full-time staff wow. so we went from having all of those volunteers to none uh, for a, wa- a long time and that's hard um because they're like family to us and they deeply care but also we had to keep them and our staff safe so we you know learn how to navigate with that, and now we're welcoming them back, which is lovely. And uh, we know we're really grateful for that too. Um, yeah, and I think that you know something else that we learned along the way is the I think I think I always knew this, but it demonstrated itself the importance of for us public private partnerships. You know, the food bank can only do so much, uh, and we can only have so much impact. But the federal and state response to this pandemic made an impact for us. So, for example, even recently, we started to see the number of people needing service decline right around the same time people are getting their stimulus checks, they're getting their tax returns, and they're getting the tax credit as well. And so, we're seeing the impacts. And generally, when we saw each of the other stimulus checks, when those would start to arrive in people's bank accounts, we'd see less people coming to get food assistance. So, we directly saw the impact that The government's intervention can have on the lives of people and how we can still be there for everyone that does need food but that maybe less of them need it depending on how the government intervenes and I think that that uh, you know is something that we've known uh, but I think that it really kind of starkly presented itself uh, in these cases because of the size of the federal government's response over the last year through multiple stimulus packages Uh, so I think that was really important and I think as a community, I hope, um, and I think I might have said this when we talked last, that by the time this is over, I think more and more people are going to know somebody that needed help during it. And I think I think we've seen that, you know, that more and more people have said, oh, I know somebody that needed to come to the food bank because they didn't get enough hours at work or something like that. And so I think that as sad as it is to say, I think that part of what we talked about is true. Um, and I think that the empathy that comes along with having more direct experience or knowledge of an issue, I think, uh, is presenting itself too in terms of the community wanting to help and wanting to come volunteer and wanting to learn more, um, which I think is a good thing, even if it came because of a challenging situation.
1: Your words strike me as that uh, that this is a a powerful. Uh, way for us to kind of evaluate the importance of government interventions. Yeah. And I mean, I think at the height something like 60 million Americans had identified that they were struggling with food insecurity from mm-hmm. your perspective, how does that compare to previous, you know, crises that we had faced? And I'm just thinking about, uh, you know, at the end of the Bush years when we had, you know, the great recession starting, how does that compare? How does the demand for, uh, you know, services kind of compared to that, to that crisis?
2: Yeah, I'd say that, you know, it's it's hard because we're still in it, but <laughs> I think that, you know, as, as unfortunate as that is, but I think that the demand initially was significantly higher um, than it was during the Great Recession, just because kind of the circumstances by which people ended up, ended up needing help were different in that circumstance than this one, where um, this affected everybody, <laughs> literally all of us. Uh, in a way that the Great Recession kind of did, but not in the same level or not at the same scope. And so uh, the demand was much higher initially uh, and the potential rise in food insecurity was higher uh, than it was at that time. And so I think definitely more difficult, more challenging. And then also you add on the layers of the way in which you reach people. In the Great Recession, we could still do things the same way we did them. People could come inside, they (laughs) could leave their house, you know, uh, without fear of getting ill because of it. Uh, and so this was just a way different scenario where if you were somebody with an underlying medical condition or you were elderly, uh, you know, you were told not to leave home uh, and not to go be around other people. And that wasn't the case during the recession where a need spiked. And so I think there were a lot of other complicating factors here, but the need was much greater uh, you know, as far as I saw it now than it was back then. But also I think the size of the government's response was much bigger this time than it was during Obama's first term. And so I think, you know, the amount of money and the amount of intervention that happened during the prior administration and this one currently, I think has allowed it maybe to, you know, level off a bit more than it would have otherwise had those interventions not continued. But what we saw last year was that, you know, the the stimulus checks lasted for a little while, but then we'd start to see about two months later starting to creep back up again as people get concerned about, you know, the eviction moratorium running out and their unemployment benefit increase running out, you know, all of those things sort of played into that creeping back up again.
1: Now, do you have a sense of, there is a continued child tax credit that's uh, larger than it had been in the past. Um, yeah. Do you have a sense of how uh, that would potentially affect demand? I mean, are, are these a lot of families that you anticipate are actually the ones receiving food?
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of families do receive food from us, and from you know the data that I've seen, the tax credit is estimated to cut child poverty in half. And so I think with less children, you know, living in a household that is considered to be living in poverty, less people may need our service. Um, I will also say, also say, you know, I think it's challenging because about half of the people that are potentially food insecure in our eight county service area wouldn't be considered to be in poverty. And so they're making above 100% of the poverty level, but not enough to make ends meet to have enough food. So while maybe the state of their food insecurity isn't very low food security, maybe it's just low food security. So it's like a little better, but that's not to say that just because child poverty is cut in half, that doesn't mean that they don't still need some assistance. They just may not need as much as they would have otherwise. And so I think that's the part that we don't yet know you know, I think that it'll definitely improve people's lives, but I don't know that it will provide enough support that they don't need assistance at all. They just may need it less or less often. So on the
0: opposite end of that kind of continuum of youth, <laughs> I, my understanding is that you all also partnered with Kent State University during this last yes. year. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about kind of the motivations to, to connect with the, um, with the university?
2: Yeah, so uh, we've been having conversations with Kent State University main campus uh, for a few years now about college food insecurity. So some people may not think of that. Uh, And I think in pop culture, we kind of make jokes about it. Like, oh, I just had to eat ramen all semester. like, well, that's food insecurity. You don't have enough money to eat anything but ramen. You're not getting enough nutrition to fuel yourself and your brain, right? And so it's sort of viewed as this, like, well, that's part of the college experience, but it's a struggle of the college experience that people shouldn't have to experience. And so Penn State University and Campus Kitchen Project have done great work to try to bring food to the campus for students uh, and for other people on campus as well. Uh, but we've had a conversation for a long time that that kind of wasn't enough, you know, that they were able to kind of get some food, but not enough to really make an impact and so uh, throughout the pandemic, we received some grant funding from Feeding America, of which our food bank is a part, to respond. You know, this is disaster response funding. What is it that your food bank needs? And so we purchased a vehicle, pop-up pantry style. Uh, it has doors on the side instead of kind of liftgate like a U-Haul truck style. Uh, so it has the doors on the side so we can easily grab food off. Uh, and hand it out. And so when we were looking at areas where uh, potentially some pantries in the community were closing or geographies or demographics that we felt like weren't being reached enough, um, one of them that we thought of was these ongoing conversations with Kent State University. And so we were able to work with the staff and students of Kent State to use Dick Stadium parking lot to pop up once a month and provide food to the community. Um, the first time we distributed, I think was in December, and it was a blizzard, so yeah. <laughs> you, pictures of it. Uh, you can barely see the truck because there's just lots of snow. And uh, we served over 200 families, including many students that uh, came and also just community members generally. And I think that, you know, it, it was important for us to, and I think generally it's important for us to bring food to where people are. And so uh, to be able to use the parking lot in that way, you know, I, I think helps a lot of students. One, to, you know, volunteer, uh, but also to receive food if they need it and to receive more than they may uh, be able to otherwise. Since then, Kent State University also opened a pantry on campus, uh, which partners with us and receives food from the food bank. So we're really grateful uh, to be able to partner and support the pantry for ongoing access more than just that once a month where there's maybe more provided than normal. And just quick, a little story about that blizzard day. Um, I was there helping sign people in part of receiving government commodities were required to do intake. So we have to ask for people's name and they have to agree that they make below a certain income threshold. Um, it's a self declaration. So no paperwork required. And I did not dress as warm as I thought I did. Um, so that snow was just like going through all of my clothing and my boots. And my my gloves were like cloth gloves. So they were soaking wet. So I couldn't wear them anymore because I was using a, an electronic device and this gentleman pulled up next to me, had his arm out the window and had this window down. And I said, what are you doing? And when I looked up, he had those little hand warmers. And he said, these are for you. You are freezing out here. And you could see I'm like shaking, you know? And I said, no, no, you keep them. You know, it's, it's really cold out here. You might need them. And he said, no, I was hunting over the weekend. These are left over. And he said, and you're out here doing the Lord's work. The least I can do is help you. You're helping me. And so I think just the gratitude that people have for the work that we do, you know, I think sometimes that um, there's a lot of stereotypes that people associate with people asking for help. And I think more often they're wanting to help in return. And so he was a reminder for me uh, of, you know, he cared about me and saw me out there freezing because I was there to help people like him. And so he was there to help me too. My hand stayed warm as a result of him. Uh, so grateful for him if he ever listens to this. I, I really appreciate it. That. That's fantastic.
1: I, I wonder, is there... Any lessons that we can take away from this about how to kind of destigmatize, you know, need?
2: Yeah, I think I've been talking about this more and more recently. I feel like I've been joking, like, this is my life's work. I could figure <laughs> this out, I will feel fulfilled. I think that, you know, it's really challenging. But I think that regardless of whether or not somebody needed assistance during the pandemic or not, I've think i talked to so many people and so many friends and family that had to stay home, right? And they weren't around other people. And so there's just this isolating feeling of not being in community that I feel like we as humans need, right? And imagine if all things are normal, but you don't get to feel a sense of community. And there are so many people that don't get that, you know? And it's because... Sometimes we otherize them or we judge them and we don't welcome them in. We treat them as though they don't belong. Um, And I think that applies to food insecurity and to lots of other sectors of life. And so I think if we've all learned that we need each other more than we thought we did. And I think we've learned that. (laughs) I hope. Um, You know, I, I hope. I think a lot of people have. Then I think, you know, how can we use that learning and that recognition to further a conversation about destigmatizing certain aspects of life? How can we consider the reality that all of us in life will sometimes be in a position to help and sometimes be in a position to need help? So how do we take that knowledge that we all have, maybe it's deeper back or less recognized, but we all kind of know that. Um, how do we then propel that into normalizing, um, the need for housing or the need for food or something like that. And I don't have a good answer to it. I've not found one. But what I have found is that I keep talking about it. (laughs) I keep planting the seed because maybe somebody smarter than me will figure it out or maybe just by nature of talking about it more, it makes it less scary. And so I think the more that people share their own stories about their own experiences and the more that we share those stories and empathize with them, Um, I think it also causes us to question like, what is my place in that? If I recognize that somebody is struggling in my community, it's hard to ignore it now. I know it's there. And I know that I have some place in that. I, I feel that way personally. And I think a lot of people do. And so I think the first step is like, we know this exists and the pandemic has shown us that it does. It existed before. It will exist after, unfortunately. So we know that it exists. How are we going to respond to it? What is our place And that, and I think that's an individual thing that everyone has to kind of figure out, but we all have a place in it, in my view.
0: That's wonderful. I I mean, so much of what we do is about storytelling, about empathy, about being in community. So I think your response was absolutely perfect. It has been wonderful talking with you again. Any final words of wisdom uh, before we we say
2: goodbye? Just congratulations on 50 episodes. (laughs) Launching a podcast in a pandemic. Look at you now.
1: <laughs> I know. it's. Although we've said it before, we'll say it again. This was a big saver for us. This was a, a lifesaver. Thank you. Well, congratulations. Thank, Thank you. you. Congratulations to you.
2: Thank you.
0: All right. We're super excited to have you back with us, Mayor Blackwell. And my, my first question for you um, is pretty basic, but I think, uh, you know, kind of an important starting place. Uh, so my, my question is, can you tell us a little bit about how the last year has gone? Big question, you know.
3: <laughs> um. So if I get narrowed down so that I get you the answer that you're seeking, are we talking about the pandemic? Are we talking about Maple Heights, just
0: holistically,
3: what's going on?
0: What exactly? um, Yeah, I think you know. So the first episode was focused on governing during pandemic, and since then we've actually launched another series that's talking um, with elected officials about like what it is they do. Um, So maybe narrow it to to the pandemic, but if there are some other things that you wanna make sure are in there about, so people get a sense of what it is a mayor in Northeast Ohio does, um, (laughs) and what you've been doing over the last year, happy to (laughs) have you include that. Well, I think it's
3: important to share that since we were talking about COVID, I, this is my first week back, my husband and I were affected with COVID. Um. Um, I was quarantined for 10 days, but took an additional four days um, just to rest. Um, The lingering effects, I have a cough I'm dealing with. Um, see the doctor on Monday. Um, so got some Dr. Max, so I think I'm getting through that. Today was my last dose of it. And just some weakness. I um, had the first Pfizer shot on March 31st. I went down on my uh, city's senior van, along with some other seniors, to show hey, we should get our shots. I had my assistant schedule my husband to go with us too. And six days later, I started having uh, body aches, uh, a headache, and just wasn't feeling great um, my daughter who's doing an internship in alabama said mom i think you may have come like there's no way i just had the shot and so she scheduled a rapid test at the cvs i had it and so we immediately her dad was feeling not the great so we are just coming out of quarantine So my, my first day back was on monday <coughs> so i want to tell you that even as we sit here as leaders and we are challenged to especially in communities of color to, um, where there's just mistrust of the system because of experiments and, and things in our history that say that we've been used as guinea pigs and we've not all been all, always been told the truth and that somehow our bodies can endure more pain and all that craziness. I have been champion for the the residents of Maple Heights to get COVID, I mean, to get a shot to vaccinate and I got COVID. I will say that, and doing some research and talking to healthcare professionals, I didn't have a full gap. I didn't lose my uh, sense of a uh, loss of taste or smell because I said maybe because I had the first vaccine. So I will be fully vaccinated in a couple weeks. And um, so I'll get the second shot. So I want to tell you, I say that to say that we're vulnerable, even with things that we champion for and we have to be the strength and we have to make ourselves example. We sometimes... We're, we're not invincible. And what I realized is I wasn't invincible the 10 days I had no choice but to stay away from work. And I believe that God shielded me. I got rest I haven't gotten. I don't sleep like that because I'm the safety director. So it's 24-7. Um, although I was on the phone every single day working. We don't get to turn it off. So if you want to know about what elected officials, even when we're sick, even when we're most vulnerable, um, we're forced to just take a step back. It's not truly a step back because we still have to run a city. It's still important to be in touch about a crime or something that may hit the news. It's still important for me to be the cheerleader. And now I've got six officers are infected um, with COVID um, getting back on Monday and the my police police department. I still have to let the seniors know that it's safe. And so we are the persons of influence and that carries a huge price, guys, Ashley and Casey. It really does. Um, but I can tell you that I never—I got love that I didn't even know was out there. Every single time you heard the ring doorbell, I mean, people people from all over, not just to make the heist, we're dropping out. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Gatorade and vitamins and zinc and orange juice. I've got ginger ale. It's probably going to last me to uh, Thanksgiving. Great deal of love. Um, because I, I wasn't going to tell the story. I felt embarrassed. There's a stigma. But Here's this woman saying, I'll get it. And now she's got it. And there were some people like, aha, you got it. And so it messed with my head for a while. It messed with my head um, because of stigma. I felt embarrassed. Yeah. I felt like I had, what had I done? I've been so careful. You know, I stagger the times when I'm in the office with my assistant. No one rides with me, no company, all of those things. But I will say this and we'll get off the COVID, um, it takes prisoners and you wash your hands. You, I mean, there's Corral and I've got you know every mask you can imagine, one for the city, one for the police, one for the fire, a whole stack in my, in my city car and everywhere I go, but I still got COVID. So we still have to be diligent. The other issue with COVID is we're in um, a period of just not knowing. Um, I believe it's House Bill 197, if I it, please forgive me, where there's this discussion about where does the income tax go? Does the income tax follow the employee? So if you're working from your home, which both of you seem to be doing, but your, your base is downtown in Key Tower, does the city of Cleveland get your income tax or where you both live? That would be devastating. It would be devastating for the city of Maple Heights. Most of our residents... Work somewhere else. They work at the hotels and beach. With they may work downtown. They may work at the stadium, and so, and so our higher wage earners don't live in Maple Heights, but they, which is the school district, so they're my teachers, and so they live in other communities. If that income tax is to leave the city, which is the biggest source of revenue, it would change the ability to deliver basic services. However, the police, you know, you know, safety force is the biggest part of a municipality's budget, how can I afford that? And with all of this, and again, I'm a woman of color. I had COVID and now this this case is looming and I am a black woman with a predominantly white police force. And in and, and the time of George Floyd and um, the young lady in um, Columbus and the young man, I think it was Dante Wright, I can't even keep up with all the names. People wanna know where I am with that. To fund the police, bring you know other resources. This is all contingent upon what I'm able to afford and what I'm able to do with a budget that's so flexible and so vulnerable. Listening to NPR driving in today, you know we're back to school funding being unconstitutional. How many times have we had that conversation? Although we get a small, small part of the property tax, the bulk of that course goes to schools, libraries, and uh, parks and things like that. But it all makes up my budget. Cares Act funding has been our lifeline there's another distribution the cities are uh, expecting uh, June July perhaps we will know more when the governor puts that schedule out but we had a you know a, a disbursement earlier that kept us from going off the cliff and we were able to apply those those safety forces salaries and be able to stabilize the other general fund accounts we're looking for another distribution to keep us because people still aren't 100% there. And um, so the help from the federal government is key. You know, there are 88 counties and 50 in, in, the, in the state of Ohio and the 59 communities in, in Cahoga County. So I will say this, and then I'll let you guys ask me any questions. Regionalization is something people don't wanna talk about because I come from a property tax background that's what I did 16 years before I became the mayor. I remember my first day at work, my, my boss giving me a book to read about the history. It was this suck about the history of property tax. Well, you know, you've got counties that are five miles apart, but that's horse and buggy days. And so each person had its own, you know, township, its own police chief, own fire chief, your own know, police, and all of these, these things because, you know, it took two days, you know, because of horse and buggy. Well, now I can get to Summit County in 15 minutes. I can get to Medina County in It's very, it's, so do we need, and of course being a public elected official and a mayor, people will be very unhappy with me. But as I look at this budget that's so vulnerable and things beyond our control, like COVID, me getting COVID, my officers now, you know, having COVID and it continues to, to run its cycle through the police department, not so much the fire department, but the police department because they're in and out of squad cars. And of course, you're supposed to be playing between shifts between in the locker room. But as we look at this vulnerability and um, this case has going because 197 are of income taxes following the employee, What are we, What are are we? we? how are we prepared to address that? We know we've got some of the most dangerous bridges. So infrastructure is falling apart all around us, every city. How do, how do we compete? I mean... We're talking about the wealth gap being what it is. There's a whole conversation we have about black middle class neighborhoods, Maple Heights being, how, how do we compete when valuation in Maple Heights is nowhere near what is over in Ohio City? So I think regionalization is, is, is a conversation we're going to talk about. Talk about um, I've got a, city, a couple cities next to me. One city has less than 1,000 residents. Another city has 900. I have 23,000. But they have their fire department and their brand-new in there, and they have their squads, and they have their officers. And we know for how important these, uh, how expensive, and how much of the budget these take up. You know, with, with the French benefits and contracts, does it make sense for a 800 city with 800 residents, and another city with 1,200 residents, which is just under the bridge here in some ways, to have? Does that make sense? So one area we've done regionalization is dispatch services, and you guys may know that. So, I'm part of the Chagrin Valley Dispatch Service, and there are about six, more than that, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12 cities. That's a model which says it works, but I think it's identity. It's identity politics. Maple Heights is the Maple Heights Mustangs, maroon and white. And, and, and so we have our city pride. And so then another city has their city pride. And that mayor, he or she, you know, has their city and their folks. And so somebody so you lose a mayor, and how does that change? So those are the issues from a very high level hitting a lot of things that I think mayors, I don't care where you are, that's what's like, and that's what's like in a mayor's life that is a female, that's a person of color in this racial reckoning away. I am I just was talking this call to my HR coordinator. Because I need to get some diversity training here. You know I have a diverse staff. so when um, George Floyd's verdict was was read, some people thought, well the guy should just comply. How is that to people that maybe were crying in the same room because they thought justice has been served? you know, in the police force, one of the officers said something of about black, black, black lives Matter that was derogatory and upsetting and another black officer, Know why would she say something that way? And so how do we manage and deal with the language? And I told the director and I said, at home, what did you do? You know, Because the other person kind of just, the black boy like, just kind of shook her head and was upset. We can't allow that kind of reckless behavior. This should be in a tolerant, inclusive environment. And we, as leaders, I expect my directors and chiefs to make sure every employee is safe. If that is your, your you know, or the recent one, why didn't you have an air freshener? That's what happens. When we have an air freshener. Really, there's more complexities to that. But people come from different backgrounds. That kind of behavior, that kind of reckless talk, I won't tolerate. And so I have to set the tone for these volatile times, for these times of emotion and anger and grief. And maybe another employee feeling like they're losing their power. How do we navigate that and get the work done and do what we've been elected or employed to do? And that's the business of the city.
1: Now, uh, Mayor, I, I want to go back a little bit because, right, so as you pointed out, you are a black woman. You also have a very strong uh, business background. You were a business leader for many years. And so I think that you have a really uh, unique aspect uh, and, and, and kind of purview of how to run a community relative to other local leaders. And, you know, I, and every time I would think back to kind of in the later stages of the pandemic, you would hear these politicians arguing about, oh, well, you know, we don't need to be shutting down. We need, you know, this is destroying our economy and and all that kind of stuff. And then at the same token, you know, you hear... Uh, you know, defund the police movements. And and, and as you said, in fact, uh, many communities, because they can't afford their own, you know, dispatch or, or, or police department or even fire department, they will kind of move it towards a regional model, which does save, right, some money for especially, uh, you know, cities that don't have as much uh, sales tax or, or income tax that they're collecting. So mm-hmm. given your kind of unique background and these other arguments and and discussions that we've been hearing what is it that you think you can that you contribute or do differently than other leaders
3: well i can say i i i respond with my heart and always my head because i'm dealing with people not goods and services real lives real people real tragedies in this role as the mayor i get close to the tragedy i can't tell you how many funerals I can't tell you I'm sitting on the call. 16-year-old just ran himself into a tree uh, the other night. Another one running from the police in a carjacking ended up running into the front porch of a house. Mom and nine-year-old were there. I, so I get close to the tragedy. I have a lived experiences as a woman, as a black person. I don't leave that are very much a part of my decision-making. Because I have a business background, I'm able to take a look at, you know, the, who, who am I dealing with? It's not good in services in, in real life and the business aspect. And make the hard decision about what needs to be cut because there's priorities and the person has to be able to balance those priorities. I have to pay the police, but maybe we don't have music in the park. Maybe I had to lay off my own secretary. You know, maybe what we can do is I've got to let this person collect an appointment because I've got to pool resources this way. Maybe we cut hours at city hall. We take the hits because we're the people that have agreed to, to make the sacrifice for the service. We're in public service. Public service is at the top of any decision that I make. And I make it from that perspective. And with that, I take in the business say, How can I achieve public service with these best business practices?
1: And, and what what have you learned what take moving forward as we hopefully begin to see an end to this pandemic crossing my fingers what have you learned what are you going to carry forward
3: i have learned that we are still a very divisive country not at the federal level not right here in our own home cities workplaces we're a bias, I was taking some, uh, I just took a class at Cleveland State, and I took the bias test. I I have biases. Who knew, right? <laughs> um, I wasn't even aware of the biases, but we should, we, we have to, and what was it? Learned behaviors or lived experience or something. I was a child. Is a fact that I'm from Alabama. Is a fact that I'm a black, a woman. Did I get hurt along? I mean, I have some biases. We, um, not so everybody takes the test, but I do think at this period of kind of um, stepping back, working from home, having a little bit more downtime, being aware of the mortality of the soul, the fact that you know COVID-19 is is non, is indiscriminate of who gets it or who doesn't get it, that we look at we, we take this time of reflection because for me it was a period of enlightenment. I'd have to say enlightenment. It's a long time reading, I'd some time praying, thanking God that my my son ends up getting it. But my daughter didn't have it. She cared enough from Alabama. and can her dad and I care. She had people dropping groceries off. I learned about Instacart, you know, to make sure I was getting this. That um, we that, that sometimes these timeouts are for people to just reach out. The neighborness, the, the kindness. People not gave only from their heart, from my husband, but their pocket. They're, somebody bought us groceries. I mean, groceries are very expensive. So I've learned that the things that we can't control are sometimes intentional for us to, to take a step back. These periods of enlightenment are important. These periods that bring out the compassion to the neighborness of us are important, that the people that influence must use their influence for good. And we must be aware of our biases so that we're leading people to a better place, to a more peaceful place, to more inclusive place, to a safer place to a tolerant place this is a lot of power we don't have the luxury of being reckless with it we, we just don't and anyone any leader that isn't people really should look to make a different choice at election time and they need to be engaged and look at that because this is too much power to get it wrong and we must constantly revisit and revise our positions i have i have over and over again Am I making this decision as a black woman or am I making this decision as a person that's just, this is just outright wrong? And then I want to bring that back to this city so we are engaging a professional to do an in-service because I've been hearing things other employees have saying, and I charge my HR department, my law director, I want an in-service because I don't think directors, when directors, I just can't believe you said that, well, yeah, well, that's just her. No, there's a responsibility to correct that behavior so that everybody feels included in the workspace, so we 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 have to. There's action that's required in fixing something that's wrong. There's responsibility, and so because we have so much power and so much influence, to do our best to get it right. Even if we just get half of get it right, but the, the people looking for us for direction. And I've learned that I need rest. I need rest. I do. I I, I just really, You know, you just go go go. I, you know, speak after I'm speaking, I'm the commencement speaker for the uh, Maxine Levin's College on um, the 7th. I'm the commencement speaker, and i Mr. to send Brad, or so on the 14th. And on my birthday, June 22nd, I'm the commencement speaker for Lincoln West High School, in addition to work. But I've got to find time to rest. You know, when I worked at the accounting firm, you know, it's always busy season, work-life balance. Anybody really has work-life balance because, you know... You finish busy season, we get another engagement, and so you gotta gear up for that client. But COVID has taught me, and I'll be 59 on my birthday in June, it's important, the mental health, the spiritual health, the just, just, just the physical health. It's needed for me to be the kind of leader that's effective, um, influential, and uh, transformative. If I'm not the best I can be, I can't do those things at the optimal level in which
1: the people deserve when they choose a leader. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming back on with us.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. It was a real pleasure having you. Thank you guys for having me again. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan and with me as always is my co-host, Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is produced by David Yursa. Our merch is designed by Donuts & Coffee. And our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio, right here in Cleveland, Ohio. We're supported by the American Political Science Association and our Patreon patrons. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you want to support the show, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, swag, and more, head over to patreon.com growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about filling the gap.